Welcome back to the Sports Medicine Orthopod, the show about the world of sports medicine and the people who inhabit it. I'm joined by two good friends today, Dr. Drew Burleson out of Cincinnati, Beacon Ortho. Drew, what's going on? What's up, man? How are you? I'm good. Saturday morning clinic, getting the the weekend started off right. There you go. There you go. And out of Detroit, what? Dr. Nithin Natwa, our old friend who had helped before we launched our YouTube channel. Nithin, what's going on? What's going on? Just enjoying my Sunday. Not yeah. in Nick, hopefully getting ready yeah. for some uh, college football. <laughs> yeah. So you are a Michigan State alum, and who you guys got today? Uh, Youngstown State. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully we're able to take care of business. Otherwise, that'll be pretty sad. Fighting <laughs> Jim Trestles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So I want to bring these guys on because they are both sports medicine doctors. Drew is a surgeon. Nithin is what we call our non-operative sports doctor. And there's some confusion as to how is this possible? You know, what is the difference between a sports doctor who does surgery and one who doesn't? What is sports medicine? What are the types of things these guys see on a day-to-day basis? What are their daily routines like? And how are their jobs similar? How are they different? So let's just throw it out to you. Maybe Drew will start. Like, what is sports medicine to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that the term sports medicine is a, is a big misnomer. I mean, I think our, my primary focus is taking care of athletes and injuries that occur during sporting events and all kinds of uh, physical activity. But, I mean, we also really take care of, like, any type of soft tissue or musculoskeletal type of injury. So, again, like, you think about us doing, you know, ACL injuries and rotator cuff repairs and labrums and things like that. But, I mean, a lot of the people we see are, for one, non-operative patients. A lot of them are weekend warriors. A lot of them are... 60, 70, 80 year old patients who have shoulder pain or just generic knee pain. So, I mean, it's, it's really kind of a all encompassing term that, that really describes like basically generic musculoskeletal injury with a focus on arthroscopic surgery. Nathan, same question. What, what does sports medicine mean to you? Yeah, I agree. It makes people think just kind of the only people that do sports, but it's honestly just in general movement in my opinion. So I guess functional medicine would be how I would describe sports medicine, although Authority is a functional medicine, so that's the only issue there. Uh, and then, like Drew was saying, it's musculoskeletal too. There's nerves in it as well too. So it's just kind of a, a preventative musculoskeletal type medicine for me. And then when stuff happens injury-wise, then we try and treat that as well too. But it's it can relate to anyone, people that are active or not active. And I feel like when people hear sports medicine, they think they have to be some high-level athlete to kind of be treated in that area. But it's literally everyone. Yeah, so Nathan, so what kind of conditions ailments injuries what what kinds of things are you seeing on a day-to-day basis so for me i've seen everything and that's kind of what happens for some fields of primary care sports medicine because we're already kind of a our field is a generalist where we know a little bit about everything and then sports medicine is like we know a little bit about everything in sports medicine so from what i've seen with the surgeons although there's some surgeons that practice everything a lot of times they tend to want to perfect their art in, uh, in a couple different surgeries and all those kind of things. So then what a sports medicine physician can do who's non-operative is they can kind of treat a whole plethora of stuff for the first I don't know, two to three steps, maybe even four steps, depending on what they do. And then if they're not able to kind of get the person back to their optimal functioning, then they send them over to one of the orthopedic surgeons who's kind of developed a, a really solid expertise in that specific body part, limb, or specific surgery type. Yeah. So for Drew as a surgeon, like what, what is that expertise from a surgical standpoint? Like what are, what are the types of surgeries that you do, Drew? So, I mean, primarily arthroscopic surgery. So you basically using a small camera, very small poke holes to go in there and 
fix various types of injuries with, uh, again, via like a, a minimally invasive technique. Uh, I do a lot of rotator cuff repairs, um, hip labral stuff, um, ACL tears, meniscus stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, again, like I, I think, like again, like we talked about before, like when you say sports medicine, if you have specialized training, that what that really means is like you are specialized to do arthroscopic surgery. Um, but I mean, but again, like just because you say surgeon doesn't mean you're necessarily going to have surgery. I mean, I would say like honestly, it's probably about ten percent of new patients who come in who actually need surgery immediately. There's always there's a lot of things that we can do non-operative as well. There's a lot of injections, physical therapy type of stuff that we can do to get patients better. Um, so again, I mean, I think that's also the, a, a misnomer as well is that like, just because a patient's going to come see a surgeon, they're necessarily going to have surgery. I think that we, if there's a way we can get you better without surgery, we're, I think we're going to exhaust those means as much as we can until basically we're out of options. Yeah. Yeah. So let's give the audience an example, classic sports medicine injury, ACL tear, Kawhi Leonard, Jamal Murray, Nick Bosa, list goes on and on and on. So somebody with an ACL tear, would, would either you guys be able to initially see that person? Yeah, I believe so. I think both of us would be able to and then have kind of a discussion on what kind of treatment plan they want to go with because although typically uh, they're repaired, you know, there are some situations where people choose not to get them repaired. And in that situation, if they want to get them repaired, then, you know, a non-op person can, I mean, if they don't, if they don't want to get them repaired, Definitely a non-op can treat them through the process and also a surgeon can treat them through the process. And if they do need to get it repaired, there are, you know, a couple steps that they need to do anyways before getting surgery. So we can kind of initiate that and hopefully streamline their care. Right. I mean, yeah, that, that's one of those injuries where, again, we're, if you're young and you're active uh, enough to tear your ACL, we're probably going to lean towards fixing that. So, I mean, again, there are some patients who elect to proceed with non-operative management, but I mean, Again, that, that's one of those ones where, yeah, you, if you see a non-operative person or, not, or someone who does surgery, they're probably going to do the first steps anyways, of, uh, get an MRI, make confirm the diagnosis. And then like, like Nippon was saying, sometimes those people need physical therapy or things like that just to get your knee ready for surgery in general. Yeah, and so then on, say, like the shoulder, uh, Cody Bellinger with his unstable shoulder, Drew and I, we've talked about that on the show. Um, Paul George, he had labrum issues those were sports related shoulder injuries that also either one of you guys could initially see. And then if it comes to surgery, which for an NBA player is going to happen <laughs> and ends up in somebody like Drew's hands. But to your guys point initially, not all of these injuries or quote unquote injuries, that's why I call them kind of ailments or conditions are necessarily related to a sports injury per se. And so, Drew, I think you and I would agree a classic example of that would be a rotator cuff tear, where there definitely can be a traumatic mechanism. You know, uh, you're in a car accident, you have a bad fall, that may cause your rotator cuff to tear. And typically in a patient older than somebody, say, like Paul George, we're talking about people, you know, maybe in the later decades of their life, they're more susceptible to something, say, like a rotator cuff tear. But you can also have rotator cuff tears where there is no known trauma and so for you drew are you only seeing those rotator cuff tear patients where there's an injury associated not, not at all i mean i would say one of the most common presentations that into my clinic is basically a traumatic rotator or sorry a traumatic shoulder pain so they just you know shoulder pain has just kind of developed over the course of the last few months starting to have a lot more trouble sleeping on that shoulder pain with overhead activities pain with trying to put a gallon of milk in the refrigerator 
And again, I mean, just because someone has those types of issues, if they don't have a whole lot of weakness um, or functional limitations, uh, steroid injections, physical therapy, I'd say a large majority of those patients get better. Um, I typically don't even get an MRI on them to start with unless they have a lot of weakness. Um, so again, like I, mean, I think that there's a, a lot of patients out there who have these atraumatic shoulder type pain issues. And again, we can, so we can treat a lot of those non-operatively. And if they don't, if they tend to not get better with therapy, then that's when we get the MRIs and start thinking about, Hey, do we need to do surgery to fix this? Yeah. And then, and Nathan, I'm sure you see a ton of these patients as well. Yeah, no, it's just, uh, and that's kind of the thing about it is that, uh, when, um, when I was talking about seeing kind of the non-op stuff and streamlining that over, it's typically, there's a couple of different ways to practice sports medicine. And one of them is what I do as a purely non-operative orthopedist. And that's kind of the position that you find when you have orthopedic surgeons that have reached their, their capacity for their patient load. And it's, they basically just have to kind of figure out the non-op patients they want to see and also kind of patients that are tracking towards surgery. Whereas you can also do kind of that primary care physician approach where you're a team physician and they have typically two doctors at that time. They have a team orthopedic surgeon who tends to manage more of the traumatic, uh, like Drew was talking about, orthopedic issues. And then the primary care doc who will manage all the athletes' primary care issues, as well as kind of those initial maybe non-traumatic pains as well, too, and kind of prevent them from going over to a more severe level. So it kind of just depends on how you want to tailor your practice with primary care sports medicine, whether you want to go for that purely non-operative orthopedic approach or whether you want to kind of blend it in with a little bit of that primary care too. Yeah, and so I think <clears throat> to the layperson, they may think shoulder pain equals surgery. I'm going to end up in Drew's clinic. I'm going to end up having surgery. But the vast majority of these musculoskeletal ailments can be treated very successfully by somebody like Nithin, right? With a, a non-operative approach with things like Drew mentioned, therapy, targeted injections, things of that sort, right? Yeah, definitely. And just like strategic with physical therapy as well too, because there's so many different ways to get physical therapy and people might say that they've had a course of physical therapy, but that doesn't mean that they've had a proper course of physical therapy. <laughs> so I guess it's really important to kind of figure out what kind of therapy they're getting, who they're getting it from, what kind of techniques those people are using as well too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, if we take it a step further, somebody might hear rotator cuff tear and assume that equals surgery 100% of the time. But Nathan, you could probably speak to this. You probably treat many people with rotator cuff tears very successfully without ever having them to refer them to the surgeon. Yeah, definitely. I guess, I guess the biggest thing to remember is that there's those stats that were thrown out earlier. It's just the vast majority of orthopedic injuries don't require surgery. So it's more important kind of to just jump on the issue earlier on. As soon as you think that something might be going wrong, just get in and see your local orthopedic surgeon, local, local uh, sports medicine physician, and just get an evaluation because kind of the longer you wait, the longer it takes to recover and the higher the chance of surgery ends up becoming, regardless of how, how low that initial chance might be. Now this might get a little technical, so we won't spend too much time on it, but in my practice where we work collaboratively uh, with an, a non-operative sports surgeon, I'm an operative sports surgeon. Um, he is sort of our master of um, kind of more newer state-of-the-art injections. So I think we all have given a million cortisone injections. It's sort of the bread and butter when it comes to joint or uh, musculoskeletal injections aiming for pain relief. But 
turn on the radio, turn on the TV, you're going to hear all about these other types of injections, PRP, uh, stem cells, things of that sort. Um, Nathan, in your practice, is that something, uh, kind of a corner of your practice that you've focused on or have come to master? Yeah, so I've definitely done it before. I don't currently do to my practice because it's it's really based kind of heavily on the demand of the local area and the the like the uh, awareness of people in terms of what treatment options that they have. So currently, I don't do it, uh, but I have seen it done. I've done it, and I've seen pretty good results from it. it I, once again, just like the therapy, you got to find someone who knows how to do it correctly because it's not just. It's not just kind of shooting in the area that's painful. It's kind of the technique of putting the needle in, taking it out, making sure that you're getting the correct blend and making sure that they're kind of tailoring uh, tailoring their approach well as well. Because a lot of times with sports medicine studies, they don't uh, they don't always show the strongest evidence for them, but it's because they're each athlete, each uh, patient is so different that it's really hard to standardize it. So although you might hear studies saying that this stuff isn't effective, it it is effective in some people. It just, you know, we got to figure out how to do it more effectively to get that to a broader population. Yeah, totally agree. The evidence isn't so great for some of these newer injections. Drew, yeah. how do you guys do it in your practice? So I, I actually do quite a bit of that. So I, I do ultrasound guided injections. I do PRP. I do stem cells. Um, I, I think NIF makes a great point that, I mean, you, it's just you have to find the right patients. Um, again, if you look at the literature right now, I mean, so we, the generic term for these PRP, so what that is, is platelet-rich plasma. You take your blood, you spit it down, you get the inflammatory components. We also do like these bone marrow aspirates where you can get other types of stem cells. Um, again, we call those orthobiologics. Um, I, I think that that field is still very young. I think we're still trying to figure out, I mean, hopefully that's gonna be, you know, a, something that, you know, 20, 30 years from now, that that's a, a mainstay of orthopedic treatment, just kind of, a regenerative type of medicine. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like the, if you're trying to, if you have someone with end-stage arthritis and you're trying to give them a stem cell, that's it's not going to work at all. Um, but I mean, if you have someone who has, you get an MRI, I mean, I'm sure Anthony, I'm, we've all seen these patients where it's very tough to do, what, what are you going to do with them where they have, they don't have that much arthritis on their x-rays, but then you get an MRI and they have a lot of cartilage where they have some swelling in the bone and you're like, well, this is not a good patient for a knee scope. It's not a good patient for a knee replacement. Maybe again, these orthobiologics are a good uh, for that person. So again, it, I, I think it's, it's very hard to say, you know, where we are in regards to this, because there are people who are getting them for the wrong indications. And if you, no matter how good a treatment is, if you're giving it for the wrong indications, it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you, you have to be very selective of, of who you do these types of injections on. Yeah. I don't want to go down that, this rabbit hole too much, because as you said, Drew, the, the science is still evolving and the ideas behind it are great. We, we hope it works really well. Um, we're just trying to fine tune the science and whatnot, but this was just to say that, you know, Drew, you do surgery, Nathan, you're non-operative sports, but you guys both do these types of similar things. And so there is a lot of crossover and similarities between your jobs. What, what, what would be the differences, um, outside of, you know, the fact that Drew, you're, you're maybe ultimately taking some people that require surgery to surgery. Um, and then, you know, that's kind of where the road stops for Nithin, for those few, uh, unfortunate people that do require surgery. Are there any other differences between your two practices, um, that, that, you know, jump out at you? You know, I, I wouldn't think there'd be a whole lot of differences to be honest, other than the days that we're in the, the operating room, I would say day-to-day -day stuff when we're in the clinic. I mean, I would think a lot of the stuff's the same, you know, you're doing a lot of the same injections. You're sending a lot of people to physical therapy, yeah. treating 
as non-operatively as possible. I mean, fortunately for us, I mean, I think that, I, I mean, I, maybe Nitha may feel differently, but I mean, for, it's it, honestly, the clinic, it may be a little bit easier for us just because we have the ultimate bailout of just being like, you know, if this isn't working, we have surgery. You know, we, we always have that option on the table. Um, so, I mean, I, again, that's, that's I, I, other than that, I, I don't know if I see a whole lot of other differences. Yeah, no, I agree. It's uh, it's honestly just if you, in terms of if you're going into the field, it's honestly just depends on if you like the OR or not. And if you, if you're able to be the, that kind of person and you're kind of like working with your hands versus also kind of working with your hands, but like in a much, uh, a much different way with, I mean, ultrasound guide injections, all that. I know Crusade does that as well too, but if you're basically the differentiating factor there is if you don't enjoy the OR, which was my differentiator. <laughs> <laughs> in medical school, that was people's always the advice. They'd be like, the first decision you need to make is, do you like surgery or do you not like surgery? Yeah. You kind of go off of your different career paths based off there. And then that's, I don't know if you guys got that advice as well, but that was, I feel like people said the very first decision you need to make when deciding which specialty you want to do is, you know, surgery or not surgery. Yeah. Yeah. That's an important question to answer for yourself. <laughs> um, I, and I think one other difference, and Nathan pointed this out, uh, is the maybe broadness uh, or the the net that you, you catch in terms of your patient population. So I live a very sheltered life. You know, I'm, I'm very traditional sports medicine. I'm seeing mostly shoulder and knee pain uh, or shoulder knee ailments in my clinic. I see a little bit of elbow, um, but I see no foot and ankle. I see no hand wrist uh, pathology. Yeah. I see very little hip stuff outside of, you know, bursitis type of things. Drew, I think you're, you're, Practice is a bit more broad than I than mine. You, you do hip arthroscopy, um, but but are you are you seeing as much you know foot and ankle and things like that? Whereas I think Nithin is probably seeing all of this stuff. Yeah, I mean it, it's each practice is very different, even in sports medicine. I mean, so for me, I do I see a lot of stuff. I mean, I, honestly, there there it wouldn't be surprising to have an OR day for me where I have an ankle fracture, uh, ACL, a hip scope, a rotator cuff repair. Uh, an elbow fracture. I mean, again, like just all around the world with like body parts. Um, again, like I, that's, I don't know if that's absolutely common amongst all sports medicine surgeons, but I mean, everybody's practice is a, little, is a little bit different. I mean, if you were to look at, you know, one of my mentors, Neil Elitrash, I mean, he's not seeing that stuff. He's doing, you know, specifically sports injuries. He's, you know, fixing Aaron Rodgers clavicle and then he's doing, you know, you know, Saquon Barkley's ACL. I mean, like th that's the kind of stuff he's doing. He's doing, you know, ACLs, rotator cuff repairs and labral surgeries. But I mean, other people's practices like are, could be very similar to mine where you're doing a, a lot of different things and seeing a lot of different body parts. Yeah. Whereas Nathan, you're, you're seeing everything kind of like head to toe, I'm sure. Yeah. So with my practice, my partner, uh, one of them, he's their uh, sports fellowship orthopedic surgeon. The other one is a joint replacement specialist. So before I came in, they were just seeing hips, shoulders, knees, and then that's it. They weren't seeing anything else. Uh, so then I rolled in and then I see that kind of stuff too, uh, you know, just kind of based on uh, the acuity, the severity of it. But then and now we also see hands, feet, foot, ankle, all that kind of stuff, wrists, elbows as well too. Uh, so like Drew's talking about, some practices are a little more specialized and some practices they're just down to do everything. They do everything every day. And um, it just kind of depends on where you're going to go. Yeah. Yeah. I think drew most practices in terms of sports medicine, surgery are probably like yours. Mm. I'm no Neil Elitrash, but you know, I live, <laughs> I live, I live a sheltered life. Uh, I, I'm the first to admit it. Uh, okay. So 
let's we're going to get into how you you know this is how do you become a sports doctor we're going to get into that in one second last question is um what is your day-to-day -day like drew you said you guys are similar but obviously with surgery you know that's going to change things so drew what what does your week look like your day-to-day -day schedule what is that kind of like so i mean i would say most sports surgeons have like one to two operative days a week um so our or starts at seven in the morning um and then you have surgery all day long um the other days of the week, I mean, again, we go into orthopedics because the lifestyle is pretty nice. I mean, you know, we have clinic from eight to about five, and that's usually about it. Um, again, we, we've talked about a lot of we, us take call as well. I mean, I think I have about five days of call a month. Um, and again, when you're on call, you may have to add some stuff on to the end of your workday. Um, what but, is that? What What is call? The call means that you're, you're you're on call for a hospital. So if anybody comes into the emergency room with an orthopedic injury, hip fracture, arm fracture, any of that kind of stuff that needs surgery while they're in the hospital, then again, you go to the hospital and you do the, do the surgery while they're in the hospital. And again, like I said, you, we don't really necessarily build time into our schedule to say, because you don't know, some, sometimes things may not come in, they may not. So you, you have your typical work day and then you, at the end of the day, you do the surgery after you've been at work that day. Um, but like I said, like in general, you, other than the surgery, the surgery days are a little earlier and can be a little bit later sometimes, but the clinic days are, you know, an eight to five type of day. All right, Nathan, same question. What's your day to day like? So, yeah, like uh, Drew's talking about, the lifestyle is pretty great. And that's why you kind of go into sports medicine. So, I clinic all days because I don't do any kind of inpatient work. Um, I don't know if it's common for the field in general. I think it is, though. But since we're non operative, we typically don't take call uh, because there's not really a point to taking non operative call. It's usually incorporated into the op call. So that's one of the benefits there, but typically huge, huge benefit, right? <laughs> so we, we probably should take a second to talk about that. Like yeah. call people really hate it. Right, Drew. Yeah, yeah they do. It's uh, yeah, again, like you, like, like I said, like you, it's, it could be, you're, you're uh, sometimes you're going in the middle of the night. Sometimes again, you don't really necessarily want to add on surgeries after an entire work day, but it's just, yeah, it's not it, your, most people's goal is to one day not take call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's uh, the the trade off for that is that since through uh, through this call, that's kind of where a lot of these surgeons pick up not a lot, not a, the majority of their patients, but a good amount of their patients. And a part of being a physician is building your patient panel. So typically, uh, you know, sometimes orthopedic surgeons cover teams like a lot of high school teams and all that kind of stuff. A lot more times, it's usually the primary care sports physician because the surgeon's able to take the call, build a patient population that way. The primary care sports physician usually has to get their name out in different ways through obviously the normal marketing, but they really do it through their local area where they have these high schools, the people get to know them, they get to integrate with them, they see how they deal in kind of these acute injury circumstances, build up this trust, and then they slowly start you know, sending their athletes there, their friends, family, and all that kind of stuff too. So that's one important part of being a primary care sports uh, physician is that coverage is usually a little bit more essential part of your job. Uh, so yeah, that's like kind of one of the fewer differences though. I, I think yeah. we, we, we cover a lot of sport as surgery. Yeah. It's yeah. again, like a lot of this stuff is it's each practice is very different the way they set it up. I think mm -hmm. as well, I mean, cause we, we have the same goals in regards to covering teams and getting patients the same way. Like I was at a football game last night and, saw some patients this morning for that were at the game last night. So yeah, yeah. probably some of that stuff is specific to us being younger physicians, just trying to build our, <laughs> build our, our practice as much as we can. Yeah.
Yeah, one thing they don't teach you in medical school, there's a business side to medicine. You actually have to see patients to make a living. And so these things that you guys mentioned, especially early in practice, uh, they're important, whether it's meeting people in the emergency room, you know, you don't really want to meet them there, but that's just part of being con call. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it is a, you know, effective way to build a patient population uh, or, or being out in the community covering local sports or, you know, depending on your practice, uh, like Drew, the Cincinnati Reds. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of diversity as Drew said, I think we need to go back to this call issue one more time because it is, it is such a major difference. And I'm like, uh, want to slap myself for not note, like picking that up, uh, initially, uh, you know, my, my dad still doesn't really understand what I do. He just thinks that when I'm on call, anybody who comes into the emergency room, I'm saying no matter what, uh, that that's not really true, but you would be surprised how many people come into the emergency room with some sort of orthopedic ailment that the emergency room doctor needs help with, uh, or that person ultimately will need a surgery. Drew, the classic example would be grandma falls and breaks her hip. Uh, the emergency room doctor is not going to fix that. Okay. Somebody like you or I, uh, we, we are going to fix that. And so, you know, uh, I think people, when they hear the term call, it's confusing. Some people think you're just like, kind of like a cat, just like waiting for anything to happen uh, in this tense position. And, and not, it's not exactly like that, but in the back of your mind, you kind of feel that way because anything and everything can happen uh, like that. And yeah. it will creep up on you and some days nothing's going on and you feel very, very blessed when that occurs. But then some days all hell can break loose, right, Drew? Yeah, I mean, I, you're absolutely right. There are some days where nothing happens. You're like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. And then there are some days where it's so much stuff happens that you're like, I'm never taking call again. I'm going to call and get off. I'm gonna get off the call schedule tomorrow. Um, but yeah, it's it's you just never know. You, I mean, you could be sitting there at your daughter's birthday party if you happen to be on call. All of a sudden, you know, your phone rings and there's it can happen at any time. You, there's no rhyme or reason and it'd be not it's what that's one of the hard things about it is you can't plan for it you just never know what's going to happen and you just you just have to be willing to drop every if you're on call you have to understand that you may have to drop everything to go go to the hospital so give us an example drew give us an example of a, a very busy or as we would consider horrific call that you've had maybe recently i mean my call is pretty Cush, I would say in general. It's a, uh, so you're sheltered for call. Yeah, it's level three trauma. So I mean, again, yeah. like I mean, the, a bad day for me would be like four hip fractures or four cases. I mean, like that, which happens, and it's it's hard. I mean, it's hard. But again, like you're trying to find time to get all these surgeries done. It's it, it can still be challenging. Um, there's I mean, level one. I mean, if you think back about the call we had to take as as residents at Loyola, yeah. that's a very different call. Level one trauma call is very different, where you have to. Even you think how different call was as a resident. You have to someone has to be in the hospital all the time to handle all these orthopedic issues and manage the patients in the emergency room and get them prepped for surgery. And then there's a lot more surgeries that are done uh, while you're on call. But I mean, for me right now, it's again like a, a very bad call would be having to go in in the middle of the night, like you have an open fracture or a fracture that's you know popping through the skin. Um, that needs some type of emergent surgery overnight or some type of dislocation that they get put back into place and needs to go in the middle of the night and then having to do multiple surgeries after clinic the next day. Yeah. And, you know, Loyola is like a lot of these major university hospital centers. It's surrounded by freeways, a lot of vehicular trauma. There's going to be no end to the amount of folks with broken bones 
or, or ailments coming in. And it's not just broken bones. There are infections that go down to joints, bones. That would be something we get called about. Joints that get dislocated. That would be something that we go in to see. Um, various soft tissue injuries, open injuries, as you said. And so I've actually, I, you know, my call is pretty sheltered too. It's similar to yours, but I actually just had a horrific one. Uh, in a smaller practice, like some of us are in, you may take for the weekend so that you protect your partner so nobody goes crazy. You may take the entire weekend. And so that's the system I'm in from Friday to Monday, very early in the morning. You are just a call. And so to give the audience an example, uh, typically I come in on a call day and it's pretty relaxed. But on this particular call day, uh, my partner who was on the previous night had already come in for a, a very bad infection um she basically transitioned that care to me because i was coming on to call and so first thing friday morning i'm coming in for a bad infection uh and we won't go into the details but we'll just say bad and involve the knee um so i do that surgery i already had a case that had rolled over from the previous day that i then had to do uh after that big infection case and then i finally returned to my office to basically catch up on other things that had been going on throughout the day communicate with my physician assistants to see if there's things uh, with maybe the inpatients who are admitted uh, with orthopedic ailments that need my attention. Um, day ends. Uh, I go home, I get called back maybe an hour later, dinner time to see a hip fracture. Um, I set that person up to have surgery the next day. I go home. Same thing happens again, maybe an hour or two later, go in to see another hip fracture. By now it's, you know, nine o'clock or so. I go home, I'm getting ready to go to bed so that you know, I'm fresh for to fix these hip fractures tomorrow. Two hours into my sleep, I get a call from the ER. They have a question about something, uh, which we complain about all the time. This is so stupid, but you know, we got to consider these are smart people in the emergency room. If they're calling us for help, it's for a reason. Um, that means I can't go back to sleep for an hour because I'm this is the way I am. Uh, I finally fall back asleep at 2 a.m. Then the same emergency room doctor calls me because there's a uh, a child with a really bad wrist fracture, it's got to be reset in the emergency room and he's nervous about how to do that. So it's 3 a.m. I'm going in, reset this phone, put it in a cast. I go home, try to sleep for a couple hours because I'm coming back in at 8 a.m. to hip, fix a hip fracture. Saturday rolls around. This is just Saturday now. Like <laughs> I'm going until Monday. So this is just Friday to Saturday. Fix a couple hip fractures, more things in the ER. I think at that day as I was leaving the ER, uh, leaving the hospital after that second case, I get another call from the ER. They've got a hip dislocation. They can't get it back in. And um, so I have to go in there and help them pop it in. By the way, you feel nothing short of just an absolute stud when you go into the ER and you knock out a hip fracture, uh, hip um, dislocation that nobody else could get. <laughs> I mean, you basically just walk, you just want to rip off your shirt and just like, <laughs> you know, throw it on the ground, drop the mic. Um, and so that, you know, that's Saturday afternoon and so on and so forth. So, so that's what call can be like. And that's why people really dread it. Um, and you know, along those lines that you were saying, Drew, do you like surgery or not? That's actually probably a pretty important question. <laughs> do, do you mentally and spiritually want to be on call? Because I think the answer for a lot of people is absolutely no, right? Yes, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I remember like, so my growing up, my dad was a dentist and he never took any call. And I was and I always remember thinking about like, why would anybody want to do a field where you have to take call? Like he has <laughs> never on call. And, you know, lo and behold, 20 years later, here I am take the call. All the time. <laughs> Most of the time it's okay. But like we said, at any time, 
the floodgates open, all hell breaks loose. And you got to have, you know, uh, the poise to, to deal with that without just, just feeling like I'm just walking out, walking out of the hospital and never coming back. Okay. So let's get into actually, how do you become a sports medicine doctor? So I think everybody would assume you have to go to medical school, right? And so, uh, how do you get into medical school? Like in general, it's been a while since we've been in medical school. So we're probably not the greatest authorities to talk about that. I'm assuming it's pretty competitive because it was at the time when we went, but um, it's not like you graduate high school and you just go to medical school. Right. No, I mean, it's, it's the, the hard thing about it is that like, you have to kind of prepare for, I mean, you know, going into college, I mean, there's a lot to do in college, you know, there's a lot of ways to occupy your time and attention. Um, you kind of got to be pretty disciplined in college to understand the fact that you want to go to medical school. You got to, you know, get good grades. You have to organize your time and you have to do a lot of things in order to uh, set yourself up to get into medical school. There's a lot of volunteering to do, a lot of um, different experiences that you have to have to kind of to basically build up your resume to get into medical school. So, again, that, I think that's the, one of the biggest things is, is just really knowing at a young age while you're in college that, that that's what you want to do and setting yourself up well to, to get into medical school. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Just with medical school, I think when we went to medical school, it's kind of just log a bunch of volunteer hours, do well in your MCAT, and have a good GPA, and you should be able to get in somewhere. But nowadays, I think I've found out it's like super hyper competitive now. A lot of people are taking gap years after their college, and they focus on some sort of side project that helps kind of boost up their application. I know some people that organize like the Make a Wish uh, 300 mile bicycle marathon that has like a medical tent and medical coordination and all that. So that was something I knew that got them in med school. They, I mean, they had to stellar application otherwise, but they still didn't feel like they were competitive enough, enough at that time period. So I've noticed that nowadays it's like volunteering, research, MCAT, studying, and then also just some other side project. Yeah. To make yourself uh, really stick out to these admissions committees. You gotta be an independent singer songwriter also. <laughs> yeah. what, uh, what, what is the MCAT? Uh, so the MCAT, I, you know what? I don't even know what it stands for. <laughs> you know, medical medical test. That's <laughs> M and T, I think. Uh, one of those entrances. So when people think about the SATs for college, it's basically like the the SATs for med school, yeah. and um, it's a very, it's honestly, in my opinion, a very similar type test, just at one level higher of uh, education material. So based on sciences. The scoring of that actually changed. I had no idea. I was talking to a kid the other day about like getting into med school and I was talking about scores. And when we took it, I think it was like out of 45, right? Yeah. And now it's out of like 500 and stuff like this. But the best score is five something or another. And I like, thought your score was like awful. They're like, it doesn't even go that low. <laughs> and so and I, was, I was like, I think you're wrong. He's like, no, I think you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, you get a good MCAT score. You've got good undergraduate grades. You um, do relief work in Africa. You get into med school. Yeah. Um, I think the traditional medical school is what we call um, allopathic medical school. Um, I went to Jefferson Medical School in Philadelphia. It's one of the oldest med schools in the country. They renamed it, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Sydney Kimmel. Yeah, sure went there. Jefferson. She's like they completely renamed. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's Jefferson. It's Jefferson. <laughs> um, so let's say you can't get in. It's competitive. Yeah. Is that it? Is the road over? Are there alternatives? No. So for me uh, personally, I I bloomed a little bit later. I wasn't uh, as motivated in high school or even as college, to be honest. Uh, so. 
my sister went to, you know, an allopathic MD school in the U.S., but I ended up applying to a Caribbean-based school. And the reasoning that I did that is because, um, like I said, GPA was super important. The other stuff in my application was fine, but I had two choices. I could either uh, do a post-baccalaureate degree to help improve my GPA, um, but it was kind of more of the same college experience. I didn't really think if I don't really think doing the same thing for another year was really gonna change my direction. So I actually went to med school in the Caribbean, which has, in my opinion, a little bit lower of a standard for admission, but they put you through the same kind of rigors to get out of it. So if you are committed to this field of medicine, and that's kind of one of the things I think that's most important. People think that people that go to med school are super smart. That's like the general uh, stereotype, but it's realistically the, the ability to work very hard for a prolonged period of time that I think is a quality that gets more people through medical school. So I had confidence in being able to do that. I went to the Caribbean. I think about 50% of my class failed out. <laughs> uh, I made it through past the board certification exams. And then you have to uh, interview similarly, do your rotations at hospitals in the United States, like other medical schools. And uh, then you get out and you apply for residency and hopefully you get it. Um, it's a little bit more of a higher risk route, I would say, to become a physician. But it is an option if you feel like you've realized later in life that you would want to pursue the path of medicine, but you feel like you didn't really optimally set yourself up for that before that point in time. And those board examinations ultimately are the same, right? You're, you're yeah. taking the same board examinations that uh, Drew and I did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, same step one through three. And then when you go to residencies, you're kind of mixed around with everybody else uh, and then yeah, <clears throat> kind of go through the same, same, uh, same training. Yeah, go ahead, Drew. What are you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, I was actually, I was listening to this interview recently and uh, about the, this guy was talking about, you know, going through the these very tough you know, academic processes. And the, and the way he described it was having a high tolerance for academic pain. And <laughs> I think that's actually true. I mean, again, like, I think people think, oh, well, these people are just a, a, extremely smart and, you know, that about no one else. I think you, you really only, I, I was reading this book recently as well, and they were talking about how in order to do certain things, you only have to be smart enough. So, I mean, again, you get to a certain point and, you that's you have to be smart enough to be able to make it through but then again i think just having that tolerance for academic pain is uh is probably one of the most important things now none of us are osteopathic doctors but yeah. that is an alternate route too i don't think i'm, I'm not going to pretend to uh, speak on the details of that pathway but that would be an alternative as well right we we i think we all work with osteopathic doctors they are do's for short sure. um but you know if the, the philosophy for osteopathic medicine is, is slightly different than the traditional allopathic. Um, but I think in, in general, that's sort of just an alternative pathway uh, to becoming a, a doctor just like us. Would you guys agree? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, get, like, I, I don't think I know necessarily quite all the differences, but yeah, I mean, it's just another path to become a physician, yes. Yeah, I'm from, uh, I'm from Michigan, which is a very heavy, heavily DO state in terms of, I think they have like two or three med schools that are DO as well too. Right. Uh, my alma mater, Michigan State, has one and my wife actually graduated from there along with a couple of my best friends. And yeah, they're, you know, my wife's an interventional cardiologist fellow right now and she's in a program with MDs, DOs. They all get the exact same training. The education, they just do a little bit more of this uh, osteopathic manipulative treatment as well too. And I think some of their philosophies might be different from, but from what my understanding is they combined actually the two certifications now under one overall board, even though the degrees are still different. 
and they they take a similar type of test and a lot of them tend to take the actual exact same test as the MDs that I know too. So from what I've seen, it's it's the same now, just kind of a different origin, but the same ending. That's interesting. Yeah, and so uh, from the orthopedic surgery standpoint, there are <clears throat> standalone uh, osteopathic residencies, and then there are some residencies also that have a blend of yeah. um, MDs and DOs. And uh, I, I, I have a partner who is a hand surgeon who's an osteopathic doctor and her, you know, she does the same job I do, but is a hand specialist uh, in her board examination to get board certified as an orthopedic surgeon uh, was different, but, okay. um, you know, ultimately kind of same. So I, I think there's a lot of variability in there. Yeah. kind of, kind of my, my point there. Um, so, you know, we've spoken about this a little bit. What, what is residency? Residency is the, is the most fun you never want to have again. Way <laughs> to put it. Yeah. And that's also where I had a lot of call, which we talked about. And when I realized I didn't want to do that anymore, yeah. uh, for, for me, at least residency was a primary care specialty, uh, which is what I did prior to doing my sports medicine fellowship. So I did it in family medicine and I did it with family medicine. You, you kind of have a lot of options in the type of program you're going to go for, whether it's primarily outpatient or whether it's got a lot of inpatient blend. And I personally chose the heavy inpatient blend where we ran our own inpatient service and we were on call, you know, every, every week or every other week. And we had to be in the hospital taking all these random calls. We didn't take them for surgery, uh, but we took them, I guess, hypothetically, one of my call nights in residency was we'd have some patients that had these COPD exacerbations, which are some lung, lung basically respiratory attacks, uh, some diabetic patients that, you know, we're going through diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a hospital type emergency where their sugars and diabetics are just completely uncontrolled. And then because I chose to do family, we also had uh, an OB part of our field where we had to monitor if people were coming in to give birth. And uh, one or two of those usually came in per night when we had to go deliver a baby. And it was just kind of a, it was a lot of, it was just so much fun just kind of being able to treat everything that came into the hospital and at least being able to figure out what was going to go, get them transitioned safely to the to the unit that they needed to get to and make sure that they were functioning okay. But it was a lot. It's just like you have to be thinking about every single body system and you can always consult specialists as well too. But you know, if you want to be a proper family medicine physician, you should honestly be able to handle the first three to four steps of any kind of non-surgical issue that's coming in. And uh, that's why I liked having a family medicine residency that had a strong inpatient because although we are an outpatient specialty, inpatients where you really get used to making kind of fast paced heavy decisions that have an immediate impact. So something to always consider when you think about the residencies is what kind of focus you're trying to incorporate into your practice as a physician and really kind of gun for those, those uh, qualities in the residencies you interview at. Yeah. And so residency is something you sort of actively pursue during medical school. You actually apply for it just like you're applying for medical school or undergraduate school. And uh, there's a whole convoluted kind of confusing system that we call match where you throw out a bunch of applications, you end up interviewing at certain places, and then you kind of rank the places that you like and the places rank the applicants they like. And eventually, you know, matches are made where you like me, I like you. Okay, let's do it. And then that's, that's kind of how you end up with your, um, where, where you end up doing your residency training. They vary in terms of all sorts of things, location, um difficulty the number of other residents you're in but probably most importantly length so that family practice residency how long is that three years yeah so typically i think typically most most residencies are 
three, most primary care residencies, let me correct that, are three years. Okay. There's one called physical medicine rehab, which is technically considered primary care as well too, and that's four years. And then Drew, orthopedic residency, we were in it together at Loyola. How long is that? Five years. Okay. Yeah. It's funny, I mean, honestly, like you like you were talking about I me, mean, I look back at residency and it, somehow it's, it feels like almost one of the best times of my life. Like, honestly, like, I mean, I was, you know, just starting to make a little bit of money, not much money at all, living in Chicago. I mean, like, just made a lot of really great <laughs> Um, it was just, it, but it, like you said, like it's the best time that I never, ever want to do ever again. I mean, you know, the, I think the origins of the term residency are that people used to be residents in the hospital. They used to live in the hospital. And there are times when you feel like that you are literally living in the hospital. You are sleeping in the beds, the call, like the call, there's beds at the hospital that you sleep in. And there are times where you take naps in the hospital before you drive home. Cause you're so tired that you're going to get in an accident if you drive home. Um, but I mean, again, I mean, you're, you throughout the course of your life, you're kind of pursuing medicine and you have this dream that you want to be a physician. And read the, the one of the most exciting things about residency, it's like you're you're actually learning to do that. Like you're learning to be a surgeon, you're learning to be a physician, you're putting to work all the things that you've actually learned in medical school. And it's, it is, it's, it's fun and it's exciting to actually start to treat patients and to see them better and to know that you are a part of the care team that, that's really making a difference in these people's lives. Yeah, and so medical student, you're not a doctor yet, you're a student you're paying ungodly amounts of money or the government is paying it on your behalf and then you owe the government your life. <laughs> um, and that's four years, you decide where you want to, uh, what kind of specialty you're shooting for, whether it's family practice, orthopedic surgery, radiology, emergency medicine, et cetera, et cetera. You apply, you get into residency. Now you're a doctor. You've got credentials behind your name. You get to wear a coat that says Anthony UMD you make a very modest amount of money. Um, it is not a lot. People think all doctors make a lot of money as a resident trainee. You do not. Um, and that's what you are. You are a doctor, but you are in training. And uh, you spend that residency time, whether it's three years or five years, just getting your ass kicked pretty much every day um, it, it, as a way to train you for the real world when you are out practicing on your own independently, uh, taking care of people without any supervision or help. Without using any numbers, I will tell you that when I was in residency, my nanny made more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, you just get out of residency and you're a sports medicine doctor? For me, no. So I mean, so you could do a fellowship. So that's your very last year of training. So it's a one year of training. Um, I went out to Los Angeles um, and did my fellowship out it's called curl and joke uh clinic orthopedic clinic and that's again, if you ever heard of frank joke he's the guy who invented the tommy john surgery neil alatrosh is out there um but yeah so my last year of sports medicine training was spent out there just again perfecting skills in regards to arthroscopic surgery taking care of very high level athletes and then after that then that's when you are a quote-unquote sports medicine orthopedic surgeon drew's just out here name dropping <laughs> Curl and Job is one of uh, the premier orthopedic sports fellowships in the universe. Um, and yeah, so for uh, orthopedic training, when you're a residency, you do a little bit of everything, joint replacements, foot and ankle, spine, sports medicine. When you do your fellowship, which is also another application type process, match, you like me, I like you, they liked them in uh, LA, I did mine in San Diego, um, uh, you, you kind of plan that during your second to last year of orthopedic residency, your fourth year of orthopedic residency, you, you, you set it up. And then that year, you're just doing focused training on just sports medicine. 
and, and the process is similar for for you right Nathan? yeah so we have to apply for a fellowship as well too uh so i applied to a ton of places found my top you know top couple choices that i wanted to end up with and then i ended up over at michigan state which was my college alma mater so it was kind of cool to go from the nosebleed sections in college to not the nosebleed section <laughs> that's been thrilling for me yeah <laughs> we just spent a year doing uh, just completely musculoskeletal injury evaluations and typically the program you're with covers different types of teams right. a couple of places i interviewed were different because at nyu for example they had a heavy dance medicine focus they covered the new york city ballet they covered a lot of kind of stuff and then say with the Michigan State's programs of those types, they were a lot more um, like college football, basketball, uh, soccer, volleyball, those kind of focuses as well too. So you can kind of find the programs that were a lot more tailored to the type of sports medicine you really want to focus on. Quick aside, because you mentioned your wife's going to be an interventional cardiologist, so she is a fellow right now. Uh, her training is a lot different, right? And so that just, just, just you know give us a breakdown of kind of like her uh residency fellowship uh the, the length just so we can give the audience an example like not everything is a one-year fellowship like yeah what was the training like for her well, Rima might be my wife's name is Rima and uh she might be the longest tenured Michigan State like employee <laughs> slash student because she went there for undergrad she went there for four years of med school she went there for three years of internal medicine residency and then she went there for another three years of cardiology fellowship and then on top of that, she has a sub-specialization fellowship, which she's currently in right now, which is one year. And it's all Michigan State. So I told her she should apply for like the board of trustees after this and just be like, listen, like <laughs> it's been a long period of time. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've used this joke before. I'm going to use it again. She's like that Kanye West uh, album. She can keep herself warm with all of her degrees. Yeah. A lot of, she's like collecting them. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of variability, but in general, sports medicine fellowships, whether operative or non-operative, are, are one year. Nathan, I just wanted to back up to one thing you said, and that is physical medicine or rehab. That is another residency, but can be a avenue to get to sports medicine, correct? Yeah, definitely. And I feel from my understanding, I'm sure there's a lot of physical medicine rehab doctors that do a lot of other stuff as well, too. But I uh, I like to think of physical medicine rehab as kind of the non-operative back specialists. And that's kind of uh, a lot of their bread and butter and then they branch out too especially if they do sports medicine fellowship or even if they don't they can do a lot more of the peripheral stuff as well too but i like to think that if you're someone who doesn't know if you want surgery or not and you know you don't want to go see a spine surgery or something like that pmnr those are the people to see for your back yeah and so for drew and myself there's really only two ways to become an orthopedic sports medicine surgeon and that is through the pathway we, we went through uh allopathic medical school orthopedic residency orthopedic sports medicine surgery fellowship or the DO pathway, but those same steps are basically the same. Whereas with non-operative sports, there's a couple different angles you could come at it, uh, but ultimately it has to culminate with a sports medicine fellowship typically, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I would say if, you, if you're going to see a sports medicine physician or surgeon, someone who calls themselves a sports medicine, they should hopefully do some sort of fellowship in sports medicine this day and age. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, we covered a lot of information that was way longer than I thought it would be, but this is all really good. It's kind of fun to rehash the old days. I was, you know, thinking back to my days as a broke student and then uh, a less broke, but still pretty broke resident. And uh, it's good to kind of <laughs> look look back um, and to help us go forward. Yeah, Anthony actually, he did a very theatrical performance of a reduction <laughs> hip uh, while we were in residency. <laughs> we had this roast video we made that we actually made. <laughs> 
I was yeah. playing that in my mind when you were talking about reducing that hip on your call weekend. I think I told you about that weekend. It, it played out almost exactly like my little one man show. <laughs> but you feel like a boss. The best part of that, and this happened in real life, is the emergency room doctor who called me was super cool. And he said, I've reduced this patient's hip before. Um, she had a hip replacement, which they have a propensity to dislocate more often than a normal hip. He's like, I've reduced her before many times. I just cannot get it today. Can you come yeah. down to help me? And so I went down. And the key for these, Drew can tell you, is you got to hop on the bed. Hop on the bed, you grab the leg, and you do a squat. You feel like you're in the gym. Um, so that's what I did. Pops in audibly. Like the whole room can hear it. And then the ER doctor says, that dude's a boss. And then <laughs> – Yeah, I feel amazing. <laughs> it's better than like three months of coffee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> grab, grab my coat. It's like swinging around like a cape. I'm just like, peace. <laughs> Uh, guys, really, really appreciate you coming on. I uh, wanted to give a shout out to Nathan's uh, side passion, which is the fantasy docs on Instagram. And he's posting a lot of great content. Um, this is a service really to the sports world, especially those who are interested in fantasy football, where Nathan will break down very quickly, surprisingly, how quickly you get these posts up. Um, very detailed information and very accurate information about uh, injuries that are occurring for our favorite, uh, particularly NFL players, and how that might impact you um, for your fantasy season. Nathan, you're, you're geared up. Are you ready for for another season? Yeah, dude, I love it. You know, fantasy football. It combines what I love, just watching football, and then talking about injuries and hopefully beating uh, beating my friends. <laughs> yeah, and Drew, September has rolled around. Reds are coming to. Uh, the end of their season. Are you looking forward to having some time off from covering Major League Baseball? Yeah, I mean, man, they are they're in the hunt for a wild card uh, right now. They, I don't know, it's good. They've blown a couple series that have been a little bit disheartening. So I mean, again, yeah. we got to make a push over the next couple of weeks. But yeah, I'm looking for a little bit more uh, extra time on my. Yeah, hand. I'm wearing my Oakland shirt. I got my A's jersey in the background, trying to send them some good juju. They're in the same boat. Uh, man, that that Chris Bassett injury just really took the wind out of their sails. Um, yeah. Thankfully, he's okay. All right, guys. Really appreciate you coming on. Any parting thoughts? Thanks, Mom and Dad, for listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fellas. Have a great weekend. Nice chatting with you. We'll, we'll catch you guys next time. Right. Hey, folks. Thanks for tuning in. If you like the show, please subscribe, like, and share. And we love to hear from you. If you have a question about today's show or you, a loved one, or maybe your favorite athlete has sustained a sports medicine injury that you would like to know more about, please reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or email. And stay tuned for more exciting content from the Sports Medicine Orthopod. Thanks again.